Yeah, I've had some some really tough moments, you know, because it means everything to the Olympic sailor. And often, you know, I'm the first person they will speak to, and so they'll come alongside my rib, and it's a real moment, win or lose, it's a very special moment for the athlete, and I feel responsibility to do, make the most of that. remember just sailing in like hysterical. I guess I just thought it would all work out, you know. And it didn't. And and even flying home. You know, I flew home and I sat in my car at Gatwick Airport and didn't turn it on for hours, just sat there. Didn't really know what to do. It had been so it had been so everything. Super yacht world I have done for the last decades. I'm probably the only woman to you know steer a big super yacht, and and I just I, you know turn up every year and look at it and think, really, there's 25 people on this boat, and the only women are you know like the stewardesses. Really, you just can't think a little bit out the box and invite. You know, even you know some of the incredible women that did the last Volvo Ocean race. Shirley Robertson is one of the most recognisable voices in the sailing world, as a commentator for anything from the Olympics and America's Cup to magazine shows and Sail GP. She's also one of the most successful female sailors of all time, having won two Olympic titles and been named Female World Sailor of the Year. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and today we talk to Shirley Robertson. There are so many layers to her story, and we talk about her work as a broadcaster, including her present role as part of the commentary team for the America's Cup in Auckland, and delve into her experiences as a sailor, which featured heartbreak before success. We also explore gender inequality in the sport, and then talk to her about her plans to chase a third Olympic gold medal in Paris in 2024. Shirley tells a good story, and is also good at getting others to tell theirs in her own podcast, the Shirley Robertson Podcast, and we traverse plenty of territory in this chat. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did putting it together. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Shirley Robertson. How are you? I'm very well here in Auckland in, in a lockdown, which is a, a little bit strange, but still feel pretty privileged to be here in New Zealand. Well, it's nice to um, have you on, but it's also a little bit different to, for you to be on the other side because you obviously host your own podcast, the, the very popular Shirley Robertson Sailing uh, Podcast. So how are you feeling about being on the other side for a change? It is a little bit weird. I mean, I, I think because I, I mean, I'm not interviewed as often as, as I was in the past, really. I, and I think in some ways got a bit bored listening to myself. So I'm much more interested in other people than I am in myself. But saying that, 
I'm a great fan of the podcast as a listener, but also, I mean, like you making it and having spent such a lot time, a long time making television where you just feel that you, you only touch the surface of people's stories. Uh, it, the podcast is amazing, isn't it? You just really, you know, you, people relax, you have time with people, stories develop. And, and I always think you get a real sense of of the character of a person, uh, much more so in a podcast than you do in, in television. Well, there's certainly a lot of layers to your background, and we'll explore a few of those today. Um, but I guess just, just going on that podcast theme, you know, you, you have quite a recognisable voice, and maybe uh, do, when people hear you in a setting, do they go, gosh, I know that voice? Yeah, <laughs> that happens. I mean, I remember... Maybe it was a couple of an Olympics ago in um, in Australia. They took our commentary, and then we were uh, with CNN Mainsail that we used to make. You know, we were down for the Sydney Hobart. I think the winter after, and uh, I mean they hadn't seen my face, but they they'd heard my voice and they recognised me because you know we were the common the commentary also for the for the Aussie team that year. So so people do recognise my voice. I still have a, a hint of a Scottish accent, not too much. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess I am, within the sport of sailing, pretty recognisable. And you're comfortable being a public figure? Public figure. I mean, I, you know, I'm well known where I live, <laughs> in Cowes. And, um, you know, I was, I'm sure we'll get to it, but, you know, I was the first British woman to win back-to-back medals. So it was a long time ago, but... Um, you know, I guess in some areas I'm quite recognisable, and also obviously in our in the bubble of of sailing, um, pretty recognisable. Yeah, I don't mind it. I mean, I think what I do in broadcasting is not about me, really. I'm the conduit to to telling other people's stories and trying to explore other people's passions. Um, uh, but I love it. But I mean, particularly particularly with CNN Mainsail, wherever you went in the world, because it was broadcast everywhere, you were, you know, recognised, you know, at airports or or wherever. Even in Japan, I remember the World Series in Japan, we were there, and lots of people were asking me for my autograph, which, <laughs> which, which, was, a, which was a bit odd. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the fact that you're in Auckland for uh, the America's Cup. You're part of the host um, broadcast commentary team. What's the experience, the broad experience, been like for you? You know, it's not my first uh, America's Cup, um, but it is quite an extraordinary one. I mean, partly we feel an enormous privilege to be here and that it's even happening. Um, And I think all of us in the broadcast team who have come from Europe have a real sense of that. And also our responsibility, I think, to do a, a really good job because there's... You know, thousands of people who would have come to Auckland, they would have, you know, come and watched, or they would have brought their super yachts, or and they're very much stuck at home in a, you know, in a terrible situation. So I, I guess that's one element of it. I also just think it's an extraordinary cup, isn't it? I mean, the boats are they're mind blowing. I mean, we didn't know what to expect as well. I mean, you think back to when we arrived early December to where we are now. We're recording this, you know, in the middle of February. I mean, what a journey we've been on in two and a half months. The, the drama and the stories and the development. And, um, you know, for us working in the media, it's been, it's been such a joy because we're on this continual 
learning, you know, as well as as well as the viewer. We're also, you know, hungry for for story and knowledge as well. I guess it has changed so much, and, and certainly in that decade that you've been part of the broadcast uh, team. What do you sort of make of the way that it's evolved and where it's going? Well, I'm a, a massive fan because you know, for me, the cup is not just—it's not just about you know the best sailors making the best decisions. It, it's a technology race, and it always has been. Um, and it—it it feels really that this time in particular, there's been this huge leap. Um, I mean, you talk to the the guys working within the team, you know, the technical guys, and they'll they'll back you up on that. That this is the hardest yet. And I love that, you know, the fact that, you know, they don't really know, they have to make all these decisions, and they don't really know if it's going to work, and that everyone's working, you know, right at the limits of what's possible. And, you know, for our sport, that's, it's extraordinary. And people talk about the trickle down, you know, from, you know, is it relevant to the sailing and everything? But if, of course it is. I mean, to push, to push a sport at that level, whatever area it is, whether it's, you know, hydraulics or <laughs> sail design or, I mean, that has, you know, that'll have an effect through, you know, throughout the sport. And it's, it's what makes the sport so interesting. It, it's not just about being the fittest or the tactically smartest. It's the whole package. And that's what makes the cup so alluring, really. It's so difficult. And, you know, this one in particular is, you know, it's, it's hard. Do you get a sense of where it's going to go or, or do you have an idea of where you'd like to see it go? Well, I think the thing about the cup is you don't know. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I think we can't, you know, we can't go back to boats in the water, can we? You know, it just won't happen. Uh, and we've seen here fast boats, but yet the same sort of tactical nuances that you would have in a, in a slow boat, which is which has made it really appealing, I think, to everyone around the world who's watching it. It's, it's not just, you know, cat, you know, giant catamarans on a drag race. It's really, we can all have an opinion, can't we, about Ben Ainsley's tactical decision because actually it looks very similar to our own tactical decision, you know, on our club race on a, on a Sunday afternoon in our laser. And so I, I really think... You know, these boats have been, you know, a, a great choice. And at the time, it, I'm sure it was a bit like, you know, throwing the design envelope as far forward as you can and hoping for the best. I mean, none of us believed, really, that they could work. Do you remember when those first, um, the, you know, the first drawings appeared? Everyone was like, they're going to fall over. How are they going to sail those? And just look at them now, what they're doing with them. It's extraordinary and, and a massive test, not just technically, but also for the sailors, you know, and, we see them just get better. Every time they appear out in Auckland Harbour, you know, there's been huge progress. So as we sit here now, uh, it's 4-0 to mm. um, Luna Rossa after the first weekend of Prada Cup final racing. Is that an unexpected scoreline from your perspective? What did you make of that first weekend? Oh, wow. Whew. I mean, I, I think we all thought it was going to be way more even but again you don't really know because the progress is really acute you know the, the progress from week to week has been massive in the teams so you don't really know but you're just trying to 
obviously we talk to members of the team, you're just kind of trying to work out what they've been doing, and we see them out training. Uh, I, I'd have thought it was way closer. I'd have thought it would be way closer. Um, particularly, you know, on the Sunday it was a bit windier. But, you know, Ineos made mistakes, and um, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You make one mistake, and there's just no, there's no getting back into it. So... You know, now we're in a bit of lockdown, which has bought them a little bit of time, um, and so I'd, you know, I'd expect them to have come out to come out, you know, whenever we race again, a bit sharper, I guess. They're certainly under pressure. Four 0 down, you really can't make any more mistakes. Are you? Do you have a? Are you a neutral, or do you have a favourite? You know, you mentioned. Your, your Scottish accent, so therefore are you a supporter of the British team and, and would you like to see the cup go back there? Well, I'm a, I'm a commentator in the international broadcast, so we're very neutral. <laughs> but, I mean, it would, be, it would be extraordinary, wouldn't it, if the cup went back to where it started 170 years ago. I mean, the story is just... It's very, very special, I think, if the, if the British pulled it off uh, and won the America's Cup. And, you know, it's quite sort of timely, isn't it? We, you know, we have arguably the greatest sailor of all time in his prime and with all the backing he needs to make it happen. So it would be, as a journalist and a, and a British sailing fan... It, it would be an extraordinary story if they did win it, um, but we're <laughs> we're very we're very neutral. I guess what I do have, having you spent a lot of time with Ben Ainsley throughout his career, um, I do have a bit of a belief in the Ben Ainsley effect and his ability to turn things around. So, you know. I mean, my fellow commentators might give me a bit of stick because, because I'll always, I'll always say, "Well, Ben, you know, he'll get it together. It'll be all right." You know, but actually, I've seen him do it so often, either as a teammate or when I've been at, working at the Olympics, or obviously in San Francisco. You know, he's part of the, part of the winning Oracle team. So, um, is that biased? I, I mean, I'd say it's just knowledge, really. Well, let's talk a little bit more about you. Um, You've been utilised both in the studio, uh, on the water, and in the, actually on the air uh, last weekend in the helicopter. Um, do you have a favourite perspective when you're watching? Oh, well, it that's tricky to answer. I mean, it's great being on the water because it 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 gets all your senses, all your sailor senses. You know, you feel the breeze and you see it and the current and the pressure as well, you can somehow kind of sense the pressure in the team. So, I, you know, I do like being on the water and I, I love all that. But the reality is you probably get the best view in the commentary box. So we have a you know, massive amount of screens, <laughs> really big screens. Uh, we have lots of information at our fingertips. And uh, so you, I, I mean, I, if I'm on the water or in the air, I'll always watch the racing afterwards because I feel I've missed a lot. Um, I mean, it's been a joy here actually having the mix, the mix of all those things. But f for sure, I love being on the water, particularly on the stadium course. It's, I mean, it's a great place for racing there. I mean, Grant, 
Grant Dalton, that was his vision, wasn't it? That two amazing machines coming head to head, right off North Head, you know, with everyone watching. And um, it sort of, yeah, it makes me quite tingly when I'm out on that course, seeing and feeling that. And it's going to be, it's going to be an incredible match, that's for sure. So we see the sailors with all their protective equipment on. What about for someone like you when you're on the water and trying to keep up with these machines? Do you need protective equipment? Does it ever get a bit hairy out there? If I'm on the water, I'm on the camera cat. Uh, we now have two of them, but the, the main one, the black one, which is the main boat that follows, follows the action. Uh, and it goes fast, not, off, not sometimes as fast as it, we wished it could to keep up. And it's not great in a seaway. But yeah, we're, I mean, we're up high 30 knots. Um, and it's turning as quickly, you know, and as sharply uh, as the yachts are. So you're kind of hanging on, although, you know, you're a bit protected, but often, you know, I've got one hand on a microphone and one hand on my notebook, and, (laughs) you know, it's a bit hairy, but it's pretty pretty exciting, and the guys that film that, you know, um, operating the the giant camera that's on a ball in the front of the boat and and driving the boat as well. It's a real skill. They've done that for, you know, over a decade together. Um, It's a real sort of specialist role. Have you actually even been on one of these America's Cup boats? Or I guess being on the the camera cat, you get a sense of how fast it goes, how quickly you turn. But have you actually been on one of the boats? I mean, I'm still blown away by the speed of the boat. I mean, literally, you know, I drop my eyes for a few seconds to, you know, look at, you know, look at, look at my monitor or something, and I look up again, and it's miles away. It's extraordinary how fast they go, uh, and sometimes they buzz past us just for fun, I think, <laughs> for a bit of sport. I've not been on a boat. I mean, I did go uh, the last cup. I did go on all the uh, iterations of them, but this time, there's not been very many people who've actually been been lucky enough to do that. We have to um, call on a favour with Ben one day and then, huh? <laughs> we'll see. Mm. Do you get excited or as excited about going on live TV as you used to, say, before a big race? Yeah, you, you're nervous and you need a bit of that the same way you would have before a race. You, you know, you need to feel that alertness, I think, and especially with live telly because it's... You know, there's a starting gun and a finish gun, and you know you just have to make it happen during that time, whatever goes on. And a bit like a sailing race, you know, stuff happens. And uh, you know, I was in the helicopter the other day. I didn't have a monitor. I couldn't see very much, but still, you have to. You're part of the storytelling, so you just you know you have to make it work. And anyone who's worked in live telly has a. Yeah, a lot of stories about when stuff doesn't work and you have to, you know, you have to perform. So yeah, you still we're excited on the day, and you've not just us, but I think everyone in the broadcast, whether you're, you know, whether you're a, a cameraman or a director or whatever, there's a there's a heightened excitement on race day uh, and focus that there isn't on the other days. Do you go back and evaluate your own sort of performances? You know, are you a, a critical judge of, of how well you do? Well, we're part of a, a big team. I mean, within the broadcast team, we're a hundred and something people. So it's a lot. Of, <laughs> we're like an America's Cup team in itself. And so there is constant evaluation um, generally throughout the whole product. 
and the commentary team as well. We will sit down together and go through that. Um, I guess I am. I always think probably could have done a better job or explained things a bit differently. Um, I think part of that just comes from a background in sport, really, because you never think it's good enough. Um, yeah, that's probably a trait. What's the key, do you think, to being a good broadcaster? Well, our job here is for the general audience. I mean, I always imagine our audience is sort of um, educated sporting fan. That, that's kind of how I, I see it. So it's not for the diehard sailors who wants to know, you know, angle of, you know, flaps or whatever, <laughs> whatever that is. You know, we're, we're kind of more general without dumbing it down. Um, so we, yeah, that's kind of how I want to. I want to story tell. I want people to really feel and understand the story and engage in the characters, and have an appreciation, particularly in the cup, of what's at stake. Um, and I think you know we really, if you're a sailor working here, you really know that and feel it. You know for. For most of the teams, you know, to get into a position where you could challenge for the cup it is probably a once-in-a-lifetime moment for all those things to come together. So there's a, there's a massive amount at stake. And the America's Cup hasn't happened very often, 36 times in 170 years. You know, it's a big deal. And I think it's our job um, to bring that alive and to make the viewer, even if you're a fresh viewer, appreciate that this is a big deal you know it means a lot was it natural for you to get into broadcasting after your sailing career I mean how did you get into it well I, I never think I've had an after the sailing career I, mean, I never really retired I guess you still haven't I still haven't retired um was it natural I mean bef whilst I was in you know the heights of Olympic sailing you know you know, um, pre-Athens, particularly post-Sydney, I did do a bit of, of, you know, like learn to sail videos, and uh, I had great friends who owned a production company, and I mean, obviously, they could see that I could talk in front of the camera and was reasonable at explaining things, um, and so I, so I did do that, and then after Athens, I was lucky enough, really, to get a, an opportunity to train at the BBC, so I did a year. Uh, at the BBC, which was amazing, you know, because then you have you know live OBs outside broadcasts, could work in the studio, radio. Um, also, you know, you're doing news, so you you have to script write really quickly. Um, so all all those kind of skills which you wouldn't even really think about, and then you you start to understand how how the product is put together and how you fit into it. Um, so, I mean, that was great. And literally not very long after that, I was offered the job at CNN. Uh, CNN at that time had a monthly magazine show, well, their flagship show, actually, that show and a golf show, which ran for 15 years, and I did it for 13. Um, I mean, looking back, you know, an extraordinary, extraordinary time. You know, we had the whole sport to look at, and, um, you know... It was such a joy to, to look for stories and characters and to, to be able to bring that alive. I mean, not just competitive sailing, but, you know, the entire sport. It's so filled with crazy mad people. 
Well, there's obviously a lot to trawl back through over those 15 years or and so many stories and so many events you know you talk about the CNN mainsail you've done a couple of Olympic games uh, a handful of America's Cup sail GP you know is there a favorite event or a favorite story or a favorite uh, interviewee uh, among all of those I mean I could bore you all night at dinner <laughs> with stories I, we have a lot of stories because obviously, you know, a lot of different people and a lot of different scenarios. And almost, you know, to make it to make it fun for us making it, you know, we we pushed it as hard as we could, whether it was places or how we filmed things or um, we were always just trying to make it better and better. And you know, I love that about television when it's a it's a real team sport. You know, everyone has to to pull together to make a really good product. Um, I guess for me, I mean, the Olympics really sort of pull at my heartstrings. And I've covered, I mean, since I stopped competing at the Olympics, I, I've then been the reporter for the BBC and commentator. It's a real privileged spot. And I guess perhaps I have more empathy than maybe most. But... I really feel it's important to do a good job. You know, Olympic sailing's hardly ever on the television um, anywhere in the world. And it's a real moment, win or lose, it's a very special moment for the athlete. And I feel a responsibility to do, make the most of that. Um, and that's become particularly quite hard in the UK because actually we win a lot of medals now. <laughs> In my day, we didn't win that that many, but we actually win a lot of gold medals. And so I'm really sailing, sailing hard to get the, you know, the, hopefully, you know, the, the sailing gold medalists, the, the airtime um, that they deserve. Um, which is not always easy in sailing. You know, they want to come to you, but the racing's delayed, or they actually don't film every race at the Olympics, um, I mean, you know, Michael, you're there. It's, it's often, it's full of frustration. Um, but I feel real responsibility to do that. And, yeah, I've had some, some really tough moments, you know, because it means everything to the Olympic sailor. And often, you know, the, I'm the first person they will speak to. And so they'll come alongside my rib and their world's fallen apart. And it's a, that's a hard moment. And I feel a real responsibility to manage. I'm welling up, as are you. <laughs> to really manage that moment, to look after them in that moment. Or when they win as well. You know, it's just an extraordinary... Even before they've spoken to their coach, they'll come to me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really privileged, really privileged spot. I guess you can understand a lot of what they're going through more than most, given your background. So maybe this is probably quite a good time just to go back a little bit further into uh, your history. Um, you were born in Dundee in Scotland and did a fair bit of early sailing on Loch Ard uh, in the north of Scotland. I sort of in the middle, yeah. What were those early experiences like? Well, I mean, I grew up right in the middle of Scotland. Uh, you know, I opened my, my curtains in my bedroom and I looked at a hill. So, you know, nowhere near water, really. Although in Scotland, you're not very far away. We have a lot of lochs, you know, inland waters. 
And actually, we were only about 50 minutes from the sea on either coast. Um, and my dad built a kit boat in the garage. I was about seven, I think. And we sailed it at the yeah, family club. And, um, and I enjoyed it. I mean, I guess there was a lot less to do <laughs> then, you know, in the 70s in Scotland. And uh, you just did what your parents told you to do. But I, I did enjoy it. Uh, I liked you know, everyone says this, don't you? But you know, the real sense of independence, particularly when you start sailing by yourself, I really quite enjoyed that. And I like that feeling of, of always sort of getting better or just going further. Um, and, I, you know, it was really kind of low-level club racing. But I was, I think I was about 12, and they brought in some instructors from the ROI, our federation in Scotland, and uh, just for the cadets. And I remember I got a certificate at the end and I passed with distinction. And that was it. I wasn't sailing with my dad again. You know, I was off. Um, yeah, and I just, I, I mean, I still like sailing. I still like going out on a boat and got a lot of pleasure from that. And, and from a really early age, I, I had that. I mean, I could always... I always wanted to train, you know, sail longer than everyone else, and was just happy in a in a boat. And uh, so those are my early memories. And then I was, I was sort of just handpicked, really, at that time to sail with the men's laser squad in Scotland. And I was fourteen. So looking back, it's, it's a bit suspect, isn't it? Fourteen-year-old girl. Anyway, I you know sailed all winter uh, with the men who were quite a high standard in Scotland at the time, um, and they were forever rescuing me. But it was, um, it was a really good start, I guess. I, I mean, I, I was tenacious, for sure. I mean, I wasn't going to give up. And I learned at a rapid rate. I sort of had to, or I'd be left behind. So um, it, it, was a, it was a tough start, really, uh, but, but really good. Yeah, for sure. Did you see it going somewhere? Did you have a goal of Olympics or professional sailing somewhere? Well, at that time, I mean, there wasn't even... The 470 was the first women's class uh, at the Olympics. And that was, what was that, 88 in Seoul. Um, and so, yeah, the you know, the... There was a start of women in Olympic sailing. I know there'd been a few before, but they'd been the exception. Um, and then, and I was just laser sailing, starting to sail internationally a little bit on the laser circuit, but near no Olympic. I mean, I couldn't see where I would, what would I do? I wouldn't sail for 70. I was a single-handed sailor by then. Um, and then at the end of 88, they introduced the Europe class for the 92 Olympics. And we hadn't even seen a Europe. I didn't even know. Anyway, so that, so that started. And we started uh, Europe sailing after that. And, and I remember watching the 88 Olympics, actually. And, you know, I saw, I saw women win an Olympic medal. And I also, in the star class, there's a guy called Mike McIntyre who was Scottish. And he won the star class. And it just came on our, our breakfast news, you know, 20 seconds of someone I sort of knew winning a gold medal. And it, it was quite a moment, really. I thought, oh, he's from Scotland. You know, and, he's, you know, and I'm about to start my Olympic journey. And, I, I, you know, so I really remember that, sitting in my mum's kitchen watching, watching Mike win his, win his gold medal. 
So you made those next Olympics, 1992 in Barcelona, and you were 24, the youngest member of the British sailing team, and you finished ninth in the Europe dinghy. So was that a satisfactory result? How do you look back on that? I know. Well, I mean, at the time, I was devastated. <laughs> it really was. I think everyone who goes to the Olympics thinks they're going to win a medal, don't they? And um, yeah, it was. I, I was just devastated. But as you say, I mean, 24 doesn't seem young now in the Olympics, but then it was. You know, everyone always went to college, and quite often you were having to self-fund your sailing as well. So people generally were older then than they are kind of now in the Olympics. Um, but when I look back, I mean, it was so amateur. I mean, really didn't have hardly had any money. My boyfriend was my coach. Um, hadn't technically hadn't really looked at any of that I mean it was just so basic and amateur I mean but I can still remember though watching watching the medal ceremony at the end of it all and kind of at that moment getting it you know understanding how those people actually had won and that a lot more was required than what I thought um you know, you think at the time you're doing everything, but with the benefit of a little bit of knowledge and a bit of hindsight, you can see, actually, it was sort of massively flawed. I was just going sailing every day and hoping for the best. Well, things progressed, though, because you won a handful of silver and bronze medals at World Championships. But I guess what strikes me when I did a bit of research about you was your experiences in Atlanta in 1996, proved to be quite crucial, I guess, to the rest of your Olympic sailing. Tell me what happened there. Well, in the end, I finished fourth. Um, and actually, I remember doing a podcast with Tom Slingsby earlier in the year, and he said, always fear the person that finished fourth in the games before, because it's it's beyond a motivator. I mean, it's an extraordinarily difficult time. I mean, I... I had finished, finished in Barcelona, you know, I'd finished ninth. I could see my faults and my preparation and literally stepped off the plane from Spain and was straight into it. And, um, you know, tried to leave no stone unturned, really. So, you know, we built masts and our own sails and our training partners and still not with a great deal of resources, but, you know, probably spent more money than we had and was really kind of on it. Um, and then arrived in Atlanta, was good in some conditions, like race winning, good. But in other conditions, I don't know. And just in hindsight, didn't really address the weaknesses. So I wasn't, actually probably the, the whole team around me as well, just not quite as analytical as we should have been, uh, you know because I had issues and we didn't address it. And obviously they caught me out in the end and finished fourth by one point. And my God, I, I, I mean, I remember just sailing in like hysterical. I guess I just thought it would all work out, you know, and it didn't. And, and even flying home, you know, I flew home and I sat in my car at Gatwick Airport in London and didn't turn it on for hours, just sat there. Didn't really know what to do. It had been so, it had been so everything since Barcelona. I just, 
to know, yeah, was I going to put myself through all that again? Could I do it differently? That you know, nothing to look forward to. I mean, it was the most miserable winter, and no one, no one phones you, or no one knows what to say. I guess the people around you know how much it means, and so they're like, they just don't know how to how to react to it, and very few people actually got in touch. And That's why you've there. described it as uh, almost like a bereavement because people didn't know how to. They know they don't know what to say. <laughs> And, and, you know, and you have to find the answers yourself. It's not going to come from other people. But, um, and in the end, I kind of did. I you know, still had that joy of sailing. I mean, that never left me. And so I started sailing other things. Actually, I was, um, did the whole, at the time, the women's match racing circuit was quite big. And so we did that. I did a lot of small keelboat sailing. Um, and we were quite good at that. And then I just kept the Europe kind of ticking along, um, but it came, you know, it came to a point really where I'm like, yeah, I'm still loving this again. I just need to do it a bit differently. Uh, and actually, I managed to persuade Mark Littlejohn, who was a you know, really good laser sailor in the UK, to come and coach me. And I sort of hounded him to coach me, and, um, and eventually he gave in. He came for a month, and then a month became, you know, six months. And, and then that was it. <laughs> he, was, he was in. And, um, and actually, together, we kind of owned, we owned the campaign. Um, it's hard. It's really hard, I think, solo sport, if you don't have the right people around you. It's really difficult because there's just way too much going on in your head. You know, you, even decision-making, you know, how can you be really analytical in your decision-making when it's just you on your own? So, you know, I felt having Mark was a massive turning point, really. I mean, I really trusted him as a sailor. He was a good coach. He knew me well. You know, quite often I'd turn up for training, he'd send me home. You know, he'd be like, look, you're exhausted. You know, go and the equivalent of watching Netflix all day. You know, whatever it was, he'd just send me off. And, um, yeah, and, it, you know, for me, that made the difference, having a, a really solid team. And by the time we got to Sydney... We're in pretty good shape, you know. I I performed really well in the venue, and I think maybe you know in hindsight that's another thing that is generally you're kind of suited to different venues. And I wasn't, I'm not very tall, you know, and I'm not that athletic either. And at the time in the Europe, I mean, there were some incredible athletes. Um, so I couldn't have, I wouldn't win in the kind of venue where you just hiked out hard to the left hand side and tacked and crossed the feet. That wouldn't work for me. But in Sydney in spring, I mean, it was an incredible venue. Um, at that time also, we'd had an injection of cash. The lottery in the UK had started funding elite-level sports. And so, you know, technically as well, we were pretty on our game. We'd spent a lot of time in Sydney. We'd collated all the information from all of the team. And the team was extraordinary then. You know, Ben Ainsley, Ian Percy, Nick Rogers... Ian Walker, you know, a massive amount of, of real talent at, at that time. And um, obviously we had an extraordinary Olympics then. But, I, you know, I felt a confidence from then. I felt, from them, I felt really confident in the venue. Um, my kit was good. I felt fast. And, uh, you know, for sure I was a different kind of athlete, way more polished. And I think also the other sailing had helped a lot. You know, tactically I was a lot smarter 
Um, and I often say this to people, actually, if especially in Olympic sailing, because you can imagine you sail, you sail a 470 for 260 days of the year. <laughs> actually, you can learn a lot about sailing and about racing in something else and still kind of have your mojo for the sport. So, um, you know, that was really important. Yeah. Do you think the Olympics became a bit of, a, of an obsession for you? You know, those two years or three years bef- between sort of leading up to Sydney? It has to be an obsession or you won't win. Well, unless maybe you're Pete Burley and you <laughs> could go off and do other things. But even in the beginning, I bet they couldn't. I mean, they can now. But for the first Olympics, yeah, it has to be an obsession. It's really hard to win. It doesn't happen very often. You have to get a lot right at the right time. And there's a massive amount of pressure. So it has to, and it's about detail. You know, a bit like, you know, we're sitting at the cup now. It's about detail. And if they have one thing wrong on that boat, one connector doesn't work. Yeah, it's all for nothing. And it's the same in the Olympics. You can't have an, a weak, you can't have a weakness or it'll catch you out, and you won't win. And it'll all have been for nothing. You know, that 20 years dedicated will be for nothing. So certainly that was my approach. And um, I guess people around me might say, oh, you know, she always perhaps trained too much or never left a stone unturned. But I just felt I didn't want to be caught out by that one weakness. And I wanted to arrive on the start line having stacked the odds in my favour. So um, that was really important. Maybe I always thought I wasn't, you know, I wasn't necessarily a good, a good enough sailor just to rock up and win anyway. I, I, wanted, I wanted to stack the odds. And um, so I always did. I always sailed more than everyone else. And, um, yeah. Well, things went, <laughs> were going quite well for you in Sydney. You led from the start of the competition. But I guess uh, you, you probably remember this well. In the first race of the final day, you placed 16th, and it meant that you needed to finish in the top four in the last race to secure gold. How were you feeling going into that last race, given the emotional and physical energy that you put into your Olympic campaign? Oh, God, it was a terrible day. I mean, it, you know, you, until... The, there's a lot of races in the Olympics, isn't there? So, and also... Sydney Harbour is really difficult. You could easily end up at the top mark, you know, 21st and have to somehow claw your way back to something respectable. That's just how the venue was. So I was pretty relaxed, really, in the racing up to then. Um, and I did. I was always moving forward through the fleet, whatever happened. Um, and, you know, everyone says that, you know, just one race at a time. So you just take them one race at a time and... It's all good, it's pretty chilled. And then, of course, we get to the very last race of the Olympics, and all of a sudden now it's not chilled. And you're very much thinking about medals, and really hadn't until then. And that was the fir- that first race of the day, the penultimate race, was the first race I hadn't moved forward through the fleet, literally. Kind of average start, the book didn't feel great. Oh, I don't know what was going on. Probably I was just nervous, in hindsight. Didn't make it, you just never got a break, just couldn't move forward. And so, yeah, finished 16th. And I, I remember coming alongside my coach, Mark Littlejohn, thinking, before I even got there, I'm crying. And uh, I'm thinking, what on earth is he going to say? <laughs> right. 
And I'm sure he was thinking the same thing. Uh, and actually, later I found out he called uh, Mike McIntyre, who'd won gold uh, in Seoul in the start. He was part of our team, and he called he called Mike up when I was on the last leg and said, "What the hell am I going to say to him?" <laughs> but actually, I came alongside. There was a big wind shift, so we had a bit of time, and so it just really reset. And Mark said to me, "Look, congratulations," and I'm like. Congratulations! I've just, you know, had the worst race, um, you know. But I had won a medal. I was secure in a medal. And he's like, "Look, you've won a medal now. Let's just, let's just reset and sail smart and see what happens." And and luckily we did. There was a big wind shift. They had to rotate the course, so we had a, like a good forty minutes to take a deep breath and do all the things that you've practiced over and over again. And um, yeah, and then had a bit of tussle with the Dutch girl and and won and. You know, in a really kind of shifty course as well, right by the bridge there. You know, it's like all going on. Um, but the kind of conditions that I really love. Um, yeah, and an amazing, an amazing moment, you know, particularly sort of sailing up to Mark and sharing that moment together. It was really special. I mean, you, you never know as an Olympic athlete if it's all going to, if it all goes to come together or not. And we all know plenty of people who've tried for decades, and it hasn't. And it eats you away, I think, to a certain extent. So massive relief, massive relief. Was there an on-water broadcaster like yourself these days who cruises alongside and tries to get a reaction? No, <laughs> there wasn't. Different days then, uh, you know, in, in, in broadcasting. But, you know, by the time we got in, you know, every certainly British news channel was there and, and then your life's not your own you're, you know, you're whisked off and that day also Ben Ainsley, we were on the same course the Europe's and the Laser and the next race was that really famous race with Ben uh, and Robert Scheidt where they match race for the gold, an extraordinary race so actually that day was a huge day for sailing in, in the British press, you know two gold winners um, you know, such an incredible battle with Ben. So then, how does it change your life? Because I, again, and reading a little bit about you, there was an open bus uh, tour around uh, Edinburgh, even a naked photo shoot, I believe, yeah. uh, when you were painted gold. <laughs> you were also ISAF World Sailor of the Year, and you got an MBE. You know, how did you cope with all of that? How did life change for you? It, yeah, I mean, it, it's a big deal. Particularly then, it was a big deal because we actually, we didn't, as a nation, we didn't win a whole ton of gold medals. So there wasn't very many of you. Um, yeah, it was massive. And, and in a way, you felt pretty invincible. You know, I just felt everything was going to be good. <laughs> you just have this sort of confidence. And I think people often ask how it changes your life. And it's not really about the open-top bus or anything, but... You have a bit of a confidence when you start things that, you know, it's probably, you can make it work. And that doesn't leave you. Um, but yeah, it's an extraordinary time. Yeah, painted gold, naked, <laughs> all, that, all that kind of stuff. And um, it's special though. I guess, you know, I'm a sailor, not a, you know, track athlete. So, you know, I'm famous in sailing and... Um, but yeah, it's, it, 
it's a bit different. I, am I a household name in the UK? No, not really. Obviously, where I live, but um, but no. But it does give you it does give you a kind of confidence. I think. Yeah. So apparently, you were close to retirement after Sydney. So what kept you in the sport? Well, I'd been sailing that three-meter boat for quite <laughs> done three Olympic Games in the Europe. I mean, I just the thought of I just had no mojo for it. Um, but they had introduced the Yingling, uh, so three women keelboat for the next games in Athens. And I guess I'd been doing a lot of small keelboat racing, um, to a reasonable level. And um, I thought, yeah, why not? I've got a gold medal. It'll be easy. <laughs> Of course I'm going to win another one. Actually, it was really difficult. Um, you know, we'd no history of the class in the UK. class was pretty undeveloped, even in Europe. The boat's quite hard. You know, it's a scaled-down soling. Literally, it's like it's been shrunk in the photocopier. So it's really underpowered. Um, you know, I had to sail with other people. You know, I hadn't done that before. <laughs> it was also a, a ton more money, you know, keelboat development three of you except I mean you could you know definitely you could times our budget at least by three if not more so it was a, it was a lot of money and it, you know it's, it's always hard to get sponsorship for Olympic sailing it's really difficult and it took a while to get a bit of money um, and there was one point where I only had one crew <laughs> Sarah Aiton Sarah Aiton and I and we'd no boat and we'd no coach, and we were in debt, and there was about less than two years to go. I mean, it was just a disaster. Um, yeah, it was a complete disaster. But actually, I guess something that maybe having the gold medal teaches you is that, you know, if you start to get a few bits of the jigsaw, if you keep... It's like this making television as well. You think, God, we're never going to make that program. But you start chipping away at it. And then you get a bit of momentum and it, it starts to come together. And for us, a massive breakthrough was persuading Ian Walker. He was uh, hot from being skipper here in Auckland with GBR Challenge. He was a bit broken from it. And he, he saw something in us and he agreed to come and coach us. I mean, bearing in, bearing in mind, well, there was only two of us, we'd no boat and no money. <laughs> it, was, it was a big ask. Um, but, you know, he came with such an energy. And quite quickly from that, you know, we just, we picked Sarah Webb. We're like, we're just going to make it work. We just have to. Um, so no massive selection trials or anything. We're just like, you know, if we think you've got it, we'll make it work. Um, we started to you know, do well in sponsorship, we're sponsored by Volvo. We just started to gain momentum and um and achieved a lot in quite a short period of time. I mean I remember the first day he turned up, he'd just come from Cup World and we went off to you know, we're up at six and we went off to exercise and he we we met us for breakfast and he'd catalogued every fitting on the Yingling, every screw, bolt, washer, everything. He had it all done. <laughs> And I thought, actually, yeah, this is, this is the pace, this is the intensity that we need to make this happen with, you know, 18 months to go. And, uh, and yeah, we did. I mean, we kept that, kept that pace going throughout the whole 
you know, that whole thing. And uh, it was hard to find speed in that boat. It was difficult. Um, but we would, you know, I remember in Athens, we'd launching in the dark and towing 15 miles that wind and, you know, just to do big downwinds or, yeah. <laughs> but you, you made it work, though, and you won that, that gold medal, a, a second one. So how did the experience differ, you know, going from a solo sailor to being part of a team? Was it a different experience? Yeah, it's different in lots of ways. I mean, I guess partly, again, working with Ian, you know, we were confident we could make it work, but not in any way arrogant. So without question, we worked harder than any other team there um, and were way more analytical about our approach, which was hard, I guess, for, you know, I had two young sailors with me, you know, their first Olympics. You've got to kind of manage that as well. And at the Olympics, you know, there's a lot of, noise isn't there there's parties and visitors and other olympic athletes and it's just it's a big kind of circus and i guess both ian and i were really careful to to keep our eye on the target and you know not let either of the sailors i guess be really distracted by by all of that because it is it's a sailing race you've got to be ready to perform every day and you know do the thing you're good at it's not really about the track suits and the noise it's still about the four of us you know three sailors and the coach you know delivering um uh, it was it i mean in the end we won very easily we won with a day to spare we spent that day in the spa <laughs> Sitting in the hot tub, teaching uh, teaching both the Sarahs the national anthem, ready for the, ready for the night. Um, but I even remember actually, even when we had one, you know, debriefing the last day, we were that, we were just like that, you know, um, we were just in that mode, and it was really important to keep that going. Um, it's special sharing that kind of experience with people. It. It's different. And I'd felt a massive responsibility to them. I guess they bought into my belief that we could make it happen. And so I felt the responsibility to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I remember waiting in the tunnel in Athens. Be, the medal before us was Sofia Beccatoru. You know, it was the first gold medal for Greece. The place went mad you know and they could just couldn't shut the crowd down so we were waiting and waiting and waiting in the tunnel and um you know i remember sarah webb she just sort of slipped down the wall and sat on the ground and uh, you know was in tears and it's the first real moment that had happened the sort of realization i guess of what she'd done in such a manic two years what she'd achieved and you know we we had a moment really before we before we went out well, it's a special, special achievement, isn't it? Um, it made you the first British woman to win consecutive gold medals. Um, you also ranked number one in the world at various times in the Europe dinghy, and also women's match racing. Uh, you were the only female skipper competing in the ICS Cup, and then the Extreme Sailing Series, and then Extreme 40 uh, World Championships. How important are things like that to you, and did you see yourself as a 
trailblazer, I guess, for, for women in sailing? I mean, I guess I'd always just sort of plowed my own furrow. So it's a slightly tricky question. You know, I made it happen with the people around me, or, you know, either happened or it didn't happen. But um, I don't know, a trailblazer. You know, maybe in the Olympic world for, for women, because, you know, I was right, just right at the start, really, um, and the first British sailing woman, you know, to win a gold medal. And, you know, we've had a few since then. So, yeah, maybe in the Olympic, in the Olympic world. I mean, I just, uh, you know, was hungry to, to sail other things and take opportunities. And, and, you know, things like the Extreme 40, you know, I had a great sponsor in JP Morgan Asset Management. They wanted to do more in sailing. They were also sponsoring Ben. Um, and, and it was right at the start, really, of the Extreme 40 series. So, I mean, I'd never even sailed a catamaran, a hobby on a beach. That was kind of it. I mean, the most crazy kind of first year in that boat um, but I wasn't shy I didn't think oh, I won't be able to do it I just thought it might take me a while to, to be able to do this well and I was you know again surrounded with better people I mean actually some of Ben's team now were my crew uh, you know Freddie Carr and Nick Hutton they were my crew in the Extreme 40 um, and so yeah I mean I just took took the opportunities I could and tried to learn from them really you know and I mean there's some time you know some I look back on and think oh god really I could have learned a lot more didn't really maximize that but um yeah I felt with the extreme 40 I mean it was great I wasn't the only woman actually Caroline Brower who now lives in Oz she um her and I yeah, her and I had a boat then. And, and it felt like the beginning. I mean, it's almost slightly disappointing that then we were the last year, Caroline and I were the, the last year there was women with their own teams and that there just hasn't been since. So I don't know about a trailblazer because actually I don't necessarily think things have progressed. <laughs> it's not like we, we started something and it's gone on to amazing things. Um, I, I'm sort of slightly disappointed that 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 didn't happen. What sort of things do you think would bring about some material change for women in sailing? I mean, obviously, in the, in the Olympic arena, it's just, it's prescriptive, isn't it? And, you know, by the time we get to Paris in a few years' time, it would be 50-50 in terms of medals and participation. So, I mean, that's just legislation really has made that happen. But it has made... It has made the federations all, you know, rethink, you know, policy and, you know, training and resources all the way down, all the way down, really. Um, and we're seeing a lot more women, you know, umpires and race officers. And so in the Olympic arena, I guess it's easier because it's mandatory. It's much harder in other areas of the sport, you know, like you still go to, you know, the TP52 event or, you know, any kind of big keelboat regatta. You know, the number of women in key roles are really small. Uh, you know, and I race, I race in the super yacht world. I have done for the last decade. I'm probably the only woman to, you know, steer a big super yacht. And 
And I just, I, you know, turn up every year and look at it and think, really? <laughs> There's 25 people on this boat and the only women are, you know, like the stewardesses or, you know, I just like, really? You just can't think a little bit out the box and invite... You know, even, you know, some of the incredible women that did the last Volvo Ocean race, you know, it, it just doesn't, I don't know, it's just not really in the mindset of that kind of owner boat culture. It's it's much harder to, because you can't, you can't make that mandatory. That's, that's much harder. But I think, you know, when we look at, say, OGP obviously have an initiative, um, I think we'll see some changes as the cup goes forward. I think, you know, the optics of a cup where you, you know, you never see a woman really is, that can't last that much longer, I think. That will become unacceptable. Um, So I think in those kind of arenas, I think we will see change. I think the harder thing is the sport globally where, you know, it's largely you know, owners or it's self-funded, then you can't mandate for that. That just needs to be a change. That's a cultural change. Do you agree with quotas? Well, you know, I remember um, when the Volvo, when the Volvo made, you know, the stand, that in essence it would be, well, they didn't quite say it would be mandatory, but definitely it's beneficial to have women in the last Volvo. We interviewed Mark Turner, who was the CEO at the time, and he's like, I'm sure this isn't the right decision, but I have to do something. And this is the only way I can see it currently working. And so, and I remember thinking at the time, actually, he's, he's absolutely right. There might be flaws in this, and I'm sure, you know, as a journalist, we could poke holes in it. But actually, good on him, he's taken a stand. And and I think, actually, yes, I think making it mandatory is probably the only way we're going to see any kind of change. Um, I mean, I've been in this sport a long time, and not, not a great deal, apart from in the Olympic arena, not a great deal has changed within the sport in terms of gender equality. What would you say to young females sailors now what advice would you give them um, I think you still need to ply your own furrow and make it happen and in some ways you know that's just what the sport you know the sport needs that kind of independence anyway you know if you're going to succeed in the sport you you have to be able to make make shit happen you know and so you know have that have that approach I think don't be afraid to ask actually you know can I come in your boat I mean probably they say yes do you know what I mean or, or you know how does that work someone will tell you or you know don't don't be afraid to ask people um and I think also now particularly with the way the sport is evolving and it's way more technical that if you can have a you know at least a baseline of technical knowledge then you'll be much better placed you know if your ambition is to sail in the cup or something like sail gp you know if you if you've studied 
chip science or you know you can look at a page of data and make any kind of sense of it you'll be much more you know interesting for someone who's who's recruiting a team so and we've seen cases of that you know Emily Nagal she's she studies ship science at um at Southampton you know she hasn't got a string of gold medals but she's got a real knowledge of the sport as it is now and she's really useful so the British team in Sail GP, you know, they hired her as a data analyst, uh, you know, now, and then she did a Volvo as well, and she's partly on the Volvo because she understands how to interpret the numbers, and um, so that's kind of what I say, you know, if you can, if you have a, an education in, in, you know, in the STEM subjects, then you're much more sellable into modern way of sailing and whether that's you know foiling around Auckland Harbour or even doing something like the Volvo or you know double-handed offshore you kind of need to be you know you need to have come with something else yeah it sounds a lot of people sort of talk about having a broad range of skills but also taking advantage of opportunities that come along and not saying no and I guess that brings me to our next point in that um, you're now talking about competing <laughs> at the 2024 Paris Olympics in the offshore keelboat event. How serious are you about putting together a campaign for this? Well I mean I had sailed offshore before I've done fastnets and that kind of stuff but I'm you know I'm a helmsman that's what I do and, you know, I steer a boat faster than a lot of people. And so I'm very kind of specialist. And so I'd sailed those kind of races with a big team, done my job, trimmed a little bit. Um, but that was it. And when you're not on, you're just kind of sitting on the rail, you know, and I'm no interest in doing any of that anymore. Um, but last year, I was approached by a, a young offshore sailor called Henry Bombay. He's 30 done the Volvo, three years in the Figaro. Um, he makes stuff happen, Henry. And he just asked me to come for a bit of a sale. And he was all, I mean, I knew he was trialing for a, a woman partner. And, um, and we got on. And I liked the boat. The boats were small, uh, familiar in a way. You know, I'd done a lot of sailing in boats that kind of size. And... Uh, and I liked his attitude, and I thought, yeah, there's a lot of things I don't know about offshore sailing, but Henry does. And there's a lot of things I know about performance and training and putting an Olympic campaign together that Henry doesn't. And, yeah, we felt we could be a good team. And, actually, the only real sailing that happened last year in the, in the UK was double-handed. So we ended up doing a lot. <laughs> we trained a lot, and we raced a lot, and... Uh, Actually, it all felt it all felt quite good, and it really sort of lit my fire for the sport again. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really felt kind of pushed. It's hard. You're never off. You know, you are never off. Um, the boat's quite small. At times, it's all a bit scary. I mean, you're on deck on your own in the pitch black, doing twenty knots, dodging ships. <laughs> Sounds glamorous. You know, there is nothing glamorous <laughs> about it all. Living's really hard. Like it's really hard even to get your, you know, you do get you get a twenty minute break or whatever, and it's really hard to get your kit off. And I, I don't. Life is difficult on the boat, but you know, I like that about it. And 
I wasn't scared by it. Um, and actually, I could, I have a good feel for the boat, so I can make it go well. And so there was lots of reasons to say no. But actually, just, just doing it, I guess, taking, swallowing the brave pill and actually just getting stuck in. Um, we were, yeah, we were, we were quite a duo, the pair of us. And uh, there's something really special about double-handed sailing. If anyone's thinking about doing it, just give it a go. It's just so all-consuming. Um, it's sort of simple in a way, all-consuming, intense, and really, really rewarding. Uh, and there's a nice community around it. I mean, it's, it's really growing, like, around the world. But there's a great community because, because it is hard, I think. And everyone, all your competitors appreciate that, that you know, what you've gone through together. Um, it, it's pretty special. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be in the Olympics. It's still to be ratified by the IOC. But we have, a, as much as we can, a full-on campaign planned. We have a new boat. Henry's currently sorting all that out. And we'll do a full UK domestic season. Uh, and I think entered in the Fastnet this year is 100 double-handed entries. Massive. Um, but I think it is. It's the simplicity and the intensity. It's very, very addictive. So does that mean you have committed to a campaign? And, and if so, what do you need to do to earn selection? Well, obviously it needs to be ratified by the IOC. It's still not currently a, a medal in Paris. Um, and so you can't commit to something really but I am committed to a campaign with Henry and we need to raise quite a lot of money because it's it's resource hungry you know anyone anyone listening to this who owns a keelboat will appreciate what we're talking about you know yeah I mean it's expensive to do it well you know, even keeping your boat somewhere. It's not like you can just put your laser in the garden. You know? So it, there's a lot of cost implication to it. Um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're committed to doing it as well as we can. I mean, obviously it's quite hard to plan now because there's no... We don't know if we'll be able to travel and compete, and compete internationally. But, you know, we live by the sea. It's a really strong domestic circuit. Uh, and we have the Fastnet race, which looks like it'll happen, um, with a really competitive entry list. So, you know, we have a lot on this summer. I guess you don't know what the selection criteria is until other things are ratified first, and so it's a, you're sailing a little bit blind at the moment. You don't even know what kind of boat it's going to be, do we? No, we won't know what, what kind but we know the kind of, you know, we don't know the exact model, but we know kind of what it's going to look like. Um, and so you're right. I mean, ideally, we would have sailed lots of different boats. So you get used to making a boat go quickly, fast. You know, that, I mean, that's going to be a skill. It's hard for the Federation because they don't know the shape of the sport, really. They can't say the selection trial is going to be, you know, the Worlds and Europeans the year before because who knows how that's going to roll. We just don't know. Um, I mean, I, select, I suspect... A lot of nations will go back to domestic selection. They'll just send you off on a 600-mile race and pick the winner because that's what it'll be. It'll be one race in the Mediterranean uh, and off you'll go for three nights and that's it, one race. I'm imagining that 
your interest in the event has also piqued some interest, you know, a two-time Olympic gold medalist. What has sort of been the reaction to you dipping your toe in this water again? <laughs> well, I, I don't really know because people don't necessarily say it to your face. No, the, the reaction's been good. I mean, I guess you could say kind of midlife crisis. But there's plenty of us my age uh, getting stuck into the double-handed sport. I mean, even Kenny Reid, who I'm commentating with here, he did all last season uh, in the same kind of boat that I did in a, in a 3300. So it, it's great fun, I, I would say. And there's some big names like all around the world, you know, dipping their toe into it. Well, I'd like to get you to dip your toe in um, and predict who's going to win this present America's Cup. And why? Well, I'm not really allowed to have an opinion. But, I mean, I definitely think the Kiwis are going to be hard to beat. I mean, even just looking at them. you know, quite We saw them on the water. They were training a couple of days ago. And they were all practicing racing. It, it just kind of looks like the next level. I mean, obviously, they've had a bit more time than everyone else. You know, they came up with the rule... So you would expect them to be ahead, but um, to me it just looks like they've got a they've got a speed jump. Um, so yeah, last time we saw them race, they didn't race terribly well, and haven't had a, you know haven't had much of a chance to practice. So I guess if they have a potential weakness, it could be that. But I don't know. I just expect them to be rock solid. Well, it's been great to catch up with you and to get a lot of your perspective, your background, your experience and certainly some thoughts on a lot of things that have been going on. We look forward to hearing your voice again on the America's Cup um, racing, whenever that may be. Um, but before I let you go, I need to ask you, Shirley Robertson, what is your worst wipeout ever? <laughs> worst wipeout? I mean, obviously, lots of wipeouts. Um, I guess one of the most memorable wipeouts was in the Extreme 40. There was lots of danger in the Extreme 40. Racing in a, like a, a big canal in Amsterdam, so right in the city centre, in a sort of wide canal, with great big tall buildings either side. So the wind would just, you, you couldn't see the wind, it would just arrive, it would drop off a building and land on the top of your mast. And we're coming down. We're coming down to the bottom mark, and we're just about to you know, furl, furl away the uh, the spinnaker. And this gust hit the top of the mast, and we capsize onto the grandstand. And all the people on the shore, <laughs> crazy, crazy racing. I think this is not gonna, this is gonna end really badly. But I think they sort of they just push us up a little bit, and. Um, and Nick Hutton, who's sailing with Ben Ainsley here, he kind of he kind of walks up the boat, and the boat just pops up, and we and we save it. But um, that's definitely the most memorable, and you know maybe not the the worst wipeout, but uh, fun times in the Extreme Forty, that's for sure. And did you slink away and not give any media interviews that night? Well, I know you can't. It's so everything's so visible in films, and um, but yeah. Lots of crazy wipeouts. I mean, those early days of sailing fast boats in stadium courses. The best part of the weekend was when it was over and you'd survived. <laughs> that was for sure. 
Oh, well, we're surviving well here in New Zealand, so um, thanks again for your time. I really uh, appreciate uh, the time you've given up today. It's been fun. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to drop us a line with feedback or suggestions to michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. And if you've liked what you've heard, then don't forget to give us a follow. The next podcast will drop in a fortnight. And don't forget you can find all the previous episodes by searching under Broadreach Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care.